Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast where we dig into God's Word together and find life through Jesus Christ. My name is Ben Blakey. It's Thursday, the 24th of September, 2020. Is it possible to be desperate yet confident at the same time? Can you be in what you feel like is a hopeless situation yet still be full of hope? I think the biblical answer is yes. Yes, you can. And we see examples of that all over the scripture. And today we're going to see one in particular as we wrap up Psalm 109. And we'll look today at Psalm 109 verses 21 through 31. And here we've seen David in a tough spot in this psalm. He's crying out for help for people who are oppressing him unfairly. And we talked yesterday about it's not just some personal vendetta. Clearly, there is uh, just injustice. And these people are evil people that are seeking to hurt him. Uh, But then today, when we pick it up in verse 21, it has a tone of of confidence. When it starts off even with the contrast there, but... But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. And there we get the confidence, but now we get a little bit more of the desperation. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. So now we see the desperation, and then he cries out to God again, and look out. Look how the psalm ends. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. So there we see he's clearly in a desperate situation. He's clearly hurting. He says he feels poor and needy, yet he is crying out to God and it puts him in a position of confidence. Confidence that God will save because that's what God does. He stands at the right hand of the needy. He saves those who are condemned. That's who God is. So I don't know what the most difficult situations are in your life. I want you to think maybe of the situations where right now you feel desperate. And I want you to see, no, there there is hope to be found in whatever situation that is through God. Uh, maybe there is some situation in your life where you feel real, you feel really up against it in the battle of temptation or sin. Uh, well, well, guess what? There is someone who can help you. There is someone who can deliver you. That's that's God. Uh, maybe there is some kind of physical need or financial need in your life that you just don't know what to do about. Here we, we see God stands at the right hand of the needy one. And there's so many promises in scripture that we can lean on, that God will provide, that God will take care of us, even the hope that we have in heaven. Uh, Maybe there's just some other situation where you genuinely don't know what to do, where there's just options in front of you and you don't know which one is the best and most God-honoring thing to do. Well, remember, God promises to give wisdom to those who ask it. So whatever the situation in your life right now that maybe makes you feel a little bit desperate, are you praying about that to God? Are you consistently bringing that before 
the one who is sitting on the throne and therefore leaving confident really reminds me of what we saw in 2 Corinthians when Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh and how he learns to boast even in his weaknesses because when he is weak, then he is strong. And in the places often where we can begin to feel desperate, that's where we need to actually gain the most confidence. And again, what's awesome about that, why it really puts our attention on Christ is that it's not ourselves that we are getting that confidence in. No, we are desperate, but we are getting that confidence from the Lord. And and that's a great thing we see here in Psalm 109. And even this whole desperate versus confident thing, one reason we can be confident, we know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And we see how Jesus is somebody that is in control of desperate situations. And that brings me to the Gospel of Luke, where we see chapter 22, verses 1 through 13 today. And here it starts with the plot to kill Jesus and Judas going and betraying Jesus, right? You think that's not a good thing. That's an evil thing. That's a wicked thing. And maybe you even think of that as a desperate situation. But then we see what you might just think of as a technical passage of uh, Jesus setting up the Passover meal. But what I want you to notice is how even though the Religious leaders are out to get Jesus. And even though one of Jesus's disciples, one of the 12 is now conspiring with the religious leaders to betray Jesus and to see him killed, even in the midst of all of that, Jesus is absolutely in control. And even, it's awesome, Jesus is planning for this time with his disciples and it it says that he says to Peter and John to go plan for it and he doesn't tell them where. I mean, who knows? Maybe Judas is there as these things are being said, listening. Hey, what's going on? But Jesus handles this whole situation in a way where Peter and John go do it. And he doesn't say, oh, you're going to go here. And that's where we're going to have the meal. No, you're going to go here and you're going to see somebody and they're going to take you to where it goes. That Jesus was absolutely in control of all of those details because Jesus was not going to be betrayed and he was not going to be arrested and he was not going to be crucified one moment before he planned to. He was absolutely in control. And none of this, even leading up to his crucifixion and the crucifixion of himself was somehow outside of what he had planned. And we're seeing that a lot in the gospel of John, where he talks about his time having come. So even the way he sets up the Passover, he's totally in control of the situation. He, he is not going to you know, let Judas have the inside info so that they come in and they bust up the last supper. No, he wants that time with his disciples. I'm really looking forward to when we get to chapter 13 in our study through John, and we'll probably even slow down at that point and really dig into that uh, great passage from 13 through 17 as Jesus is talking and praying with the disciples. What an amazing time. Well, Jesus, that time wasn't going to be ruined by by Judas's plot. Jesus was going to be betrayed and arrested exactly the way he wanted to. It was all going to happen on Jesus's terms. And if you're a believer, everything in your life is going to happen on Jesus's terms as well. So in those desperate situations, we can have confidence that even though it might look out of control to us, Jesus is absolutely in control. Always has been, always will be. 
And we think about the greatness of Jesus. We remember that's one of the themes we've been seeing in the book of Hebrews. And today we look at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And here we get into this really easy, I'm sure you guys already know all this, section on Melchizedek. Some of you are like, Melchizedek, what? Um, What is that all about? So we'll get into it over these next couple days, but just to remember, and he, he reminds us some here in Hebrews 7, this goes all the way back to Genesis. And you remember there's this battle between these kingdoms and Lot, the kingdom he was a part of was on the losing side. And, uh, he gets taken off with his family, with all of his stuff, you know, by these invading uh, city states, I guess, so to speak. And Abraham, he goes with his crew and he rescues Lot. He defeats these kings and he rescues Lot. Well, as he is returning, this somewhat mysterious figure named Melchizedek Uh, And it calls him, you know, he's Melchizedek. And in the Old Testament, it calls him the king of Salem. Well, even uh, Melchizedek, that name, even the the Hebrew root and word for righteousness. It says there, even in Hebrews chapter seven, verse two, it's the translation of his name literally is king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, um, which you think of Jerusalem and that's maybe we're thinking of the city, but also Salem. You think of the Hebrew word Shalom, something that is connected to peace, this king of righteousness, this king of peace that we don't get a ton of details on in the old Testament. He shows up to Abraham. And what we're going to see here is ultimately Abraham, he gives him uh, a tithe, which literally the word tithe means a tenth. Uh, Abraham gives him uh, a tenth of the spoils um, in that moment. And so um, what we're going to see, at least in this first part, is that writer of Hebrews kind of arguing Melchizedek, there's something about him that's even greater than the Levitical priesthood. And he kind of makes that argument that the Levitical priesthood is kind of represented by Abraham. And it uses that interesting phrase that Levi was still in the loins of his ancestor, um, meaning that, you know, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob had Levi. So it's Abraham's great grandson would be Levi, who then was the father of the Levites, who then became the priests in the nation of Israel. So they weren't born yet. They were kind of, you know, still yet to be born, but through Abraham's line, but their, their great grandfather is giving a tithe to Melchizedek. And so his argument is kind of, well, if Levi's great grandfather was giving a tithe, a tenth to Melchizedek, that must mean that Melchizedek is greater than Levi, um, is, is kind of the argument and what that means and why it's significant. We'll get more into tomorrow. But if you are saying Melchizedek, what? Hopefully that gives you some context of this Old Testament passage he's referring to so we can get into some of the significance of that tomorrow. Uh, Finally, we go back to the book of Isaiah and we get back into a passage today away from kind of the apocalyptic um, passages that we've seen. But but I mean, it still might feel apocalyptic to you because there is so much going on. And really, I think we kind of come back to our bread and butter themes of the book of Isaiah. And if you remember, the themes of Isaiah that we talk about are judgment and salvation. And they're kind of mixed up. You can argue the first part of the book is more focused on judgment and later it's more focused on salvation. But even throughout, they're kind of 
mixed together. And again, the other thing that could be confusing sometimes is sometimes it's talking about judgment and salvation that's really close to happening in the time of Isaiah. And sometimes it's talking about judgment and salvation that I believe is still yet to come. And so we come back to some of these themes, but we see today, again, mostly judgment, I would argue. And he talks about how the people, uh, and he gets to why he's rebuking the people there in verse 13 of chapter 29. We're looking at uh, chapters 28 through 30 today. And it says, the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of man is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discerning of their discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And it really talks and, and paints this drastic picture of judgment throughout these three chapters and chapter 30 even warns, Hey, don't think that you can scheme your way out of this judgment by going and getting help from Egypt. That's not the point. The point is you need to repent and you're not listening to me. And even later in chapter 30, we see you're not listening to the prophets. You want the prophets to tell you what you want to hear. And again, this is where I hear so many parallels with modern society that people today, they don't want to hear what God actually says. They want pastors, they want churches to tell them what they want to hear. They're rejecting God and God makes clear, no, that is going to lead to consequences. But even at the end of chapter 30, we do see some pictures of salvation, that God is going to judge Jerusalem. He's going to judge these people, but it is not going to be the end. And that maybe even is another thing where, hey, that it, this judgment looks like a desperate situation. And so much of Isaiah with these prophecies of judgment seems hopeless and desperate, but yet it is in Isaiah that we see most clearly, I think in the Old Testament, so many of the prophecies referring to the Messiah who was going to come. Just another reminder that as people who believe in God and who believe in Jesus Christ, even when things seem desperate, we can be confident. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.